and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, for those who are followers of Pippa's running adventures, I survived my half marathon last weekend. I'm feeling a bit achy this week, but hoping to be fully recovered by the time I go out eventing next weekend. Our interview this week is with the jockey Davy Russell, talking about Tiger Roll's wonderful career, his two grand national wins, and what makes this little horse so special. He was so quick. His speed from takeoff to landing was incredible. He could pass horses in midair, you know. I'll be talking to our news team about who can work in show ponies, concussion in children, and riders' recent experiences traveling to Europe. Finally, bits and bitting expert Trisha Nassau-Williams will give us some insight into equine mouth assessments and keeping your horse's teeth in good order. So having a good equine dental technician, uh, checking your horse's teeth and mouth every 12 months is very important, regardless in my mind of how old the horse is or the amount of work that the horse is doing. He's got his teeth, he's using them every day. More from Trisha later. For now, screw in your studs and let's get going. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, racing editor at Horse and Hound. And after the emotional scenes at Cheltenham, when the mighty Tiger Roll retired from racing, we wanted to take a look back at this truly outstanding career. And who better to speak to than the jockey who rode him to victory in two Grand Nationals and one of his five wins at the Cheltenham Festival. It's Davy Russell. Davy, welcome to this week's podcast. Hi, yeah, delighted to be on. Um, well, Davy, it feels like the end of such a wonderful chapter with Tiger Roll's retirement. Are you able to put into words what he meant to you personally and, and for your career? Yeah, well, he's, he was very special to me. Um, I suppose my um, association started with him as a juvenile hurdler. I'd know I was, we were on the fourth day of the Cheltenham Festival and I'd know winner ridden and uh, all of a sudden uh, I got a spare ride on Tiger Roll and uh, he duly obliged. <laughs> and I mean, what were the first impressions when he came to Gordon's yard when, as a four-year-old? I mean, was there a buzz of excitement about him or what were your first impressions when he arrived? But he had a lovely first run in Leopardstown. I, I, I wasn't a stable jockey to Jigginstone at the time. So um, he had a lovely first run in Leopardstown and he was actually really starting to work really well when he got the sun on his back and he was started to work really well. So there was a bit of a, an anticipation about him going to Cheltenham that he'd run well and, you know, that he was going to run a big race. But Brian Cooper was supposed to ride him and he unfortunately got a very nasty injury on the Tuesday or Wednesday, oh, the Wednesday, yeah. I think. And uh, then the ride came available for, for me. So I was, you know, I was delighted to, to get the opportunity. Oh, yeah. I hadn't, I'd forgotten that actually, you know, you weren't supposed to be on him that day. So, um, I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, what was the feeling he gave you? He ran and won really well on that race at the Triumph Hurdle. What was the feeling that he gave you during the race? Yeah, he, he, he was very, very good. He was very quick to jump low and accurate. And you would have imagined that he was going to be a hurdler, you know, you know, with his stature and the way mm. he jumped his hurdles, he um he was going to, you know, probably, you know, at best, his best days were going to be seen over hurdles. Um, so, um, but again, it was very hard for me to have a connection with him because I pretty quickly realised it was probably the only time I thought I was going to get a chance to ride him. Yeah. But I was delighted on the day. He was brilliant. He travelled really well and jumped fantastic. And the one thing he done 
then at the back of the last, he really stayed on up the hill and uh, he was impressive on the day now. Yeah. And what was that feeling Did coming over the line and up that hill in the finish? Did you feel like he was going to be something special that day or did he, ha- I mean, to win the Triumph Hurdle is great in itself, but did he have that feeling there that there might be something special about him? Not necessarily, because you try to, as them juveniles off the Vlad, you try to, you think that, you know, they're going to be champion hurdlers, you know, so, and he didn't really seem the type that could be a champion hurdler. He he just lacked maybe a little bit of pace uh, to be a champion hurdler. So you were always kind of maybe thinking, you know, he'd go on and he might be a, stay in, a stairs hurdle horse. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Um, and that kind of, the shine kind of, goes off them a little bit when when they don't have that real injection of speed but um he wasn't long putting the shine back on himself <laughs> and actually i mean the rest of his hurling career was pretty uninspiring you would almost say but um as soon as he went over fences he he sort of picked up and he was winning straight away i mean was that sign of his character you sort of grabbed his interest again doing something different with him yeah well all credit had to be to gordon um because um the decisions he made a lot of people including myself would have thought that you know not not ideally was he going to be a chaser and his technique over fences was you know there was a lot left a lot left to be desired about it um he jumped a fence the same way he jumped a hurdle very low and very fat he was rub his belly and at times he was actually pull his girt back um, his girt used to come back a bit because he used to go, get so low over the fences that rub his belly along the birch and it was kind of a feeling, you know, you get from a jockey, you know, you like a horse to go down and sit back on his hocks and push mm-hmm. out over a fence. Whereas over hurdles, you know, they don't, so, you don't rely on their, their hocks as much, you know, it's more they push down or, or across, whereas at a fence they push up into the air Whereas he was just pushing across uh, the fences, but he was shocking quick at it. Oh, wow. He was very sturdy on his feet. So he never felt like he was going to fall. But, you know, he just didn't give you the feel of a real chaser. Yeah. And um, Gordon was adamant. He was going over fences. And whatever it is about Tiger Roll, he just the more he jumps and the more he sees a fence the happier he is and the more interested he is so um he's not that keen in going around the gallop he gets bored quite easy uh by galloping around in, in the sand it's a bit like i know athletes maybe you know their pre-season training is it's 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 hard uh, you know me as a jockey when if i put on a few pounds after an injury or after a break you know three weeks before you come back is kind of torturous and nobody oh, yeah. likes it um but tiger's a bit that way when he's um when he's winding up to a to a race he he's he's not that keen on the pre-season training but oh, right. when he gets racing and gets jumping and schooling that's when he really comes alive wow and i mean that's part of it as well i mean you i think we've talked before you've you take him sort of cross-country schooling and I've seen pictures of him, you know, at the beach and things like that. Is that just keeping him interested, doing different things to sort of, he sounds like such a clever horse. You just, you need to keep his brain engaged sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, so he, he does his daily routine fine, but it's very difficult to get him fit um, doing his daily routine because 
he just doesn't put a lot of effort into it. <laughs> so, but when he when you drop the ramp and the lorry and he steps up onto the lorry and he comes down off it, he's a different horse. He starts to walk with purpose, and when he gallops, he gallops with purpose. You know, mm-hmm. so he's 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 burning off the pounds and he's 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 getting the the fitness into himself. Brilliant. Um, and did you tell me once that you couldn't get him, you, or you struggled to get him to jump a show jumping pole? Is that right as well? You just you didn't really take to boring old poles. I wouldn't like to. Uh, I wouldn't like to <laughs> jump a course of a meter on him no. because uh, <laughs> he'd be like a husky around a chain, so he'd he'd, he'd 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 break every pole in the place because <laughs> he's so low. Like he just kicks, he just flicks the top, the yeah. top. We we were in Cheltenham schooling him over the banks one day before he ran, and just we just lay down at the back of the fences. He just didn't oh, no. want <laughs> no interest in jumping them. But then when he ran that day, he ran the same day, mm-hmm. and he jumped fantastic. That's just it's such a character. I mean, I mean, the best horses always have these quirks and their funny ways about them. But uh, he just sounds amazing. Did you enjoy sort of riding him at home? And I mean, did you sort of every time you got on the saddle on him, was it a a good feeling? Yeah, I, I, my the amount of times I've ridden him at home, I can actually count him. I can actually tell you the days I've ridden him at home. Oh wow! I schooled him in the Curra one day over um, the national fences. Uh, the second year he won. And I literally just jumped two national fences on him and got off him, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I rode him for uh, for the cameras one day for some uh, before the Grand National, and I only rode him the other day in 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 Leopardstown as a piece of work. And uh, I schooled him in Cheltenham this year over the banks, and they're the only thing, the only couple of times that I've ridden him. Oh, and I get a little bit nervous when I ride him because. I don't ever want anything to to go wrong at home. I I I I, I don't get nervous riding him in a race because, mm-hmm. you know, you just kind of have to put him down as another racehorse. But yeah. uh, home, I'm always I'm always a little bit worried because another thing is he he'd buck you off. He, he's right. quite yeah. He's he has a habit of uh, sticking his bum under the white railing, kicking it up off of the cups. What? Uh, yeah. So, and it's, it's as if he's doing it on purpose. He done it the other day in Cheltenham, actually, uh, coming up to shoot. He does it at home. Uh, Lisa rides him. Lisa O'Neill rides him an awful lot at home. And uh, when he's walking down the gallop after his canter, he um he puts his bum in underneath the railing and oh. kick, kicks the railing up out of the cups and oh frightens the horse in the lot. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's nearly like he's doing it on purpose. You know? Yeah. <laughs> And at what point then did um, did the road start leading to the Grand National? When did that plan sort of formulate? I presume Gordon had a bigger plan or was it sort of uh, as you went along, you suddenly realised he might be a Grand National horse? Yeah, um, all of that was, was down to Gordon. You know, mm-hmm. all the, the I, I, had, I, I wasn't involved in any plan going for the Grand National or anything like that. Um, I was just... Um, literally told the declaration time that I was riding Tiger Roll because and the only reason I was riding him is because Keith would wasn't was unable to do the weight. I oh, think I he's ten thirteen. So that was the only time I knew that I was riding him in the Grand National and um I'd have to be honest with you, I didn't think he'd get around in the Grand National because of the way he jumped because there's such a you know, a demanding fence. Mm-hmm. But and I've heard people say that Tiger Roll wouldn't have got round the old Grand National uh, fences, but I can tell you he would have got around and he would have won 
a national over any fence because he was just so clever. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he, he, he measures his fences. Now, I thought the first Grand National, I thought I'll line him up the middle, I'll jump him off as handy as I can and make sure he can see the fence that he's jumping because they're obviously different to the fences that he normally jumps um, on, the, on the race course and I wanted him to see them. But when we were going to the start, as we crossed the Melling Road to go and show him the fence, I could feel him sitting back on his hocks and looking at the fence. Oh, wow. And I was really pleased because he was giving me the feeling then that he knew he had to jump something different, that he just wasn't jumping a park fence, that he would get low and and get low at it. So I knew, I was reassured then that he knew there was a different task ahead. Yeah. And so I lined them up. I lined them up, you know, down the middle with the plan to have nothing in front of me. Like there was horses on either side of me, but no real horses in front of me and he could see the fence and and see what he was doing and you know he took to it so well like you know he just took to it so well and and after maybe three or four fences he'd start getting a little bit lower and he might rub his belly along one and feel feel that it was you know different and then he'd go back to jumping him properly again so clever yeah but he's he was so quick his speed from takeoff to landing was incredible he could pass horses in midair you know wow amazing yeah. and at what point in the race did you think okay i've got a shout here that we could actually do this um well that changed as the race All went right. on so i went from thinking i had no chance uh to you know enjoying myself and thinking well you know this is going okay and never getting ahead of myself and then yeah. just crossing the melling road he just he just started to get a little bit sleepy on me and a little bit he was losing concentration so i just i just got upside um the horse in front and next thing he just came alive underneath me he went down to the second last and he wasn't great at the second last he just kind of scampered out over it mm-hmm. but he went down to the last and he absolutely winged it and landed and ran <gasps> like a little terrier at the back of it and i was wow. thinking oh, like this is happening here Still in the back of my head with a long way to go at the back of the last. And when we got to the elbow, he was running for me. He was still running for me. And all of a sudden, I could just feel him just shutting down the engines. And he kept looking at the at the water jump. So we bypassed it on the finishing straight. And he just kept looking at it and kept looking at it and stopped galloping and slowed down and slowed down and slowed down and just just at the line um the other horse just flashed by me at the line and um oh my heart sank i just sank into his back and i was saying oh my god i I, i'm just after losing the grand national oh no and how long did you have to wait then for till you realized that you had one yeah it was it was it it felt like a lifetime Uh, but i'm sure it was only a couple of seconds but when they called the result it was um Oh God, it was an unbelievable feeling, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to to go all that way and then have to have such a close finish after such a long race, I mean, I just, I can't imagine what it must feel like after after all that. Can you remember the emotions coming back into the winner's enclosure that day? Yeah, so heading back to the winner's enclosure, like there was, you know, there's people everywhere and um, 
you're kind of just looking for faces, familiar faces, and you know you have the girls that let him up, and next thing, all of a sudden, you see Gordon and a couple of his his friends and a couple of my friends, and I think Simon McGonagall was in the crowd. Um, uh, Gordon's head lad, he goes to entry every year, and then you meet Michael and Anita and Eddie and all the all the owners, and but it just goes by like it's just like a flash of light. Um, it's 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 hard to take it all in, really. And I mean, 2009 was pretty special as well. He went, um, he was winning hurdles. He regained his cross-country title at the Cheltenham Festival. Was the aim always to go back and try and regain that title at the another Grand National? Yeah, well, I suppose it was something that has never hadn't been done for so long. So it was never really in my mindset that he would be able to do it. Um, I did know that, you know, if I was riding him, he'd be a great ride to have in the race because he'd been around there and he'd, he'd handled it so well. So to go and do it again was always going to be a very big ask. But he was in the form of his life that year. Um, he really was. He was He was probably, he was nearly felt as good this year than he did that year. He was, he was, he was really was in good form. And did you change your tactics or do anything different in that second race? Take us through that um, time that you won. No, everything was was tactically was pretty much the same. You know, I wanted to line up with not much in front of me, and um, but he wasn't as as sharp over the first couple of fences. Um, the second year, um, I, also he had blinkers on the second year, uh, which he didn't have on the first year. He just had cheap pieces on the first year, but for some reason, the first couple of fences he was a little bit when I say laboured, like we were flying, we were, you know, we were, we were absolutely going hammer and tongs up over the first couple. And I just felt by the time I got to, um, Valentine's, um, that he just wasn't, he didn't have the same enthusiasm. So I just hit him a little slap down the shoulder, uh, to make him concentrate. And, uh, oh, I regretted it straight away. All of a sudden he just absolutely locked onto the bit and started pulling like you know really traveling really well and started jumping really well and you know then I was kind of afraid I was after doing it too early or making him do too much too early and we 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 jumped uh, uh did we jump beaches that yeah we jumped beaches that year and um he really traveled like he'd gone he was I was afraid he was doing too much and that line of fences down along from Valentine's Brook to you know the other side of the Melling Road um, he just, he was going so quick at his fences that he was nearly, he was losing his footing at the other side. So maybe twice he kind of, um, he gave a little stumble at the back of the fences. Um, so, but the only thing about him is his momentum was carried forward the whole time. So I didn't feel too worried about it, but, um, you know, he was really traveling well leaving crossing the road and heading to the second last and I had in my head you know not to get there too early not to get there too early but I didn't want to disappoint him because you know if I had to tuck him back in behind the horse he just might sulk a little bit or not sulk but just be happy to follow their horses so I got up sides and again down to the last like meeting it you know a long way away I'm meeting it on a beautiful stride and I give him a squeeze and I'm ready for him now this year not to look at the water, so I was ready for him to, to you know, keep the momentum up, going to the elbow and, you know, again, he just didn't, he didn't look left or right and galloped the whole way to the line and ran out through the line and he was, oh, it was, it was unbelievable, yeah.
Oh, brilliant. I went down in history as well for uh, to be that dual Grand National winner. Fantastic moment. And sadly, we never saw him actually in another Grand National after that. But you took the reins again for his final cross-country race at Cheltenham this year. And, and the reception you received that day was unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a special day. Like, you know, he got clapped around the parade ring. He got clapped out of the parade ring. And more importantly, he got clapped back into the parade ring. It was, it was just very special. It was unfortunate. I was a bit, I wasn't exactly smiling from ear to ear, which I suppose you can understand. I was after finishing second and uh, we really fancied him. And I just, I just feel if the rain hadn't come, I, I, I don't think there was any horse would have beaten him um, um, on, on Wednesday. You know, he's just, the, the rain just scuppered our chances really. And, uh, but it was, look, the crowd were unbelievable. They, 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 they cheered him all the way and, for the first time ever in my life when I took up the running you know heading past kind of there heading back on the final loop we'll call it I could hear the crowd roaring out on the track and you know it's quite noisy in Cheltenham when you're standing on the ground but when we're in the two mile start for the supreme novices and the big roar we we we, we can only barely hear that as a faint in the distance but when he took up the running, I could actually hear the crowd uh, lift, lifting him, and uh, so it was, it was, it was very special. Oh yeah, it was a great moment, great moment to watch. And he's going to enjoy his retirement at Jiggenstown, but hopefully we might see him parading at some point. Oh yeah, Jiggenstown, you know they're they're steeped in racing, and they understand the value of Tiger Roll to racing. And oh, fingers crossed, now we'll see him, we'll see him parade, um, parade at the races. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, he's not going to be hidden away anywhere for sure because he likes the limelight and um, he likes the big crowds. He, he seems to be at his happiest, but he can be a bit of a handful, you know, so, you know, you just wouldn't like to be uh, too close to him when he's, when he's, um, when he gets excited, you know. <laughs> and, um, and finally, just looking ahead to this year's Grand National, which is just around the corner now, I'm guessing there'll be mixed feelings not having Tiger Roll to ride, but is it a race you always look forward to? Oh yeah, you, you like you know your opportunity to ride in the Grand National is just you know it's fantastic and and uh, it's such a big event like it's it is you know the Masters the Wimbledon and we get the chance all them days going around in the muck and dirt and you're wondering is there anybody watching you know why are we doing this and all of a sudden you get an opportunity to ride in the Grand National and your centre stage. For them, you know, a couple of minutes, and it's 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 just a marvelous event, and 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 Aintree or, and Liverpool, it's the perfect setting for it, you know. It can never be replicated, so it's 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 as I say, it is one in a million. Brilliant! Oh, Davey, we can't wait. Thank you. That was such a great insight into the absolute legend that is Tiger Roll. As I say, Aintree won't be the same without him this year. But hopefully, as you say, we'll see him out and about in some capacity soon. So, thank you very much for joining us, Davey. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. So I'm joined today by two of our news team. First up, our news editor Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? 
Yeah, all good. Thank you. It's, it's spring, been out to a couple of shows and actually realised before the first one, the weekend before last, that neither me nor my horse has actually left the ground at all since the end of January. So one down was not too bad and then managed to jump clear this week. So oh, all that, good. <laughs> that's good. I would definitely take that. Well done. <laughs> We're hoping for a progression to a rosette next week. Yes, that would be lovely. <laughs> we all know horses don't always work like that, but I've got faith in you. <laughs> if, if I mention nothing about shows next week, we'll just move swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> if Ellen's just like, yeah, the weather's been lovely. Yeah. Well, no, she fell off. Actually, I fell, actually, I fell off this week. So, <laughs> Oh, no, what happened? <laughs> I was jumping at home and things started to go a little bit wrong. And then Alfie decided that I should jump a fence without him. So I did. <laughs> oh, no, were you okay? <laughs> yes, I was fine. I did have my air jacket on, so I got like compressed by it blowing up. But uh, I'm sure God. it saved me from some bruising. So that was, <laughs> I was pleased that I was wearing it. So yes, but got back on, jumped some more fences. So yes, temporary, temporary blip, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Becky Murray with us, our senior news writer up in Scotland. I don't think the weather's quite so spring-like with you, Becky. No, I was going to say there's no spring up here. Um, heavy snow at the moment. And so I haven't fallen off because I haven't been riding because the weather's so awful. <laughs> so. Well, that's the best way to ensure you don't fall off, I suppose. <laughs> don't get on, don't fall yeah. off. Happy days. <laughs> no, it's been a bit of a non-horsey um, sort of week, but um, my mum's visiting from Shetland, so that was lovely. And yes, hoping the weather clears up and I will be back on my horse soon. Yeah, well, we will look forward to to hearing about that. <laughs> on to the serious news. Eleanor, you have been following up more this week on a story that we've covered on the podcast before. We've been talking about it for a while. It's about age and size of riders who can work in show ponies. For everybody who's not quite so deep in this story as you, <laughs> give us a quick reminder, what's it all about? So this was, uh, as we've covered before, the Great Yorkshire Show brought in a rule that, so it, it had already had this 20% uh, maximum rule so that riders own, had to be no more than 20% of the horse's weight. That had been in place since 2016. And then last year they brought in this rule that basically says ponies can only be ridden anywhere on the showground, either by the rider who's riding it in the class or someone else who would be of the appropriate age for that class. And they uh, brought that in, as, as we said at the time, because they said people were still flouting the 20% rule. So that rule was brought in and then made huge debates and Horse of the Year show removed some of the Great Yorkshire's pony qualifiers because they wouldn't get rid of this rule, basically. Okay, and it's one that we've been talking a lot about ever since then about the different viewpoints and we decided that we should represent some of those viewpoints for our readers to have a look at in the magazine this week. So you've been garnering those various opinions. Who did you speak to? Yeah, so I spoke to uh, Paul Cook, who is the chairman of the British Show Pony Society, Julie Templeton, who's a, a top pony show pony producer, Amanda Stoddart West, who's the Entries and Livestock Coordinator for the Great Yorkshire Show, and Jill, who Jill Perkins, who is a former BSPS judge who's judged across the world. And one thing that did come across strongly was everyone was saying we do all agree that welfare of the horses has to be the top priority. Um, but I had Julie said she 
absolutely believes riders' size and weight should be key, but not age. And, and she thinks it should apply across the board because she said they shouldn't just target the platted ponies. And she's saying, you know, she appreciates there's a place for small adults working a pony in to give it confidence and set the child up. But, um, you know, she said, as she said in her column, it's not about the safest pony and, and that maybe a pony who isn't quite suitable for the atmosphere of a big county show uh, like the Great Yorkshire maybe shouldn't go. So that was Julie's uh, opinion. Paul Cook from the BSPS believes showing needs to be inclusive and and that young jockeys should always have a positive experience because he's saying we should get people into the sport rather than, uh, you know, discouraging them and he says they've got a clear welfare policy and and that possibly there are better ways of educating people than rules with what he called unforeseen consequences Mm, it's an interesting one a tricky one and then what other opposing viewpoints came across in those conversations so jill perkins the former bsps judge was saying as a judge she she didn't like seeing ponies that have been as she said set up by an older rider and that that the child should be pilot rather than passenger and she did also raise the point um that maybe breeding should be looked at and that maybe there should be a bit more native blood in these ponies so as she said when she was growing up there the ponies weren't too hot for children to ride um so that was an interesting view and then amanda stoddart west who is the entries and livestock coordinator for the great yorkshire was um saying some things have been seen possibly in some lorry parks that are maybe not conducive to to good welfare and that she believes welfare should be a higher priority in showing. Okay, lots of really interesting views there. I'm never quite sure where I stand on this one because part of me thinks that children's ponies should be suitable for children and then part of me thinks, well, you know, if a small and lightweight adult can 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 work in a pony and make it, not make it a more suitable ride for a child, but maybe just take the edge off it and give a child a better experience, maybe that's a good thing. So I'm, I'm really unsure on where I sit, except that obviously we don't want people who are too big for ponies riding them. It's a mm. really interesting one to hear all those views, isn't it, Elna? Definitely, and yeah, uh, absolutely agree. Well, thank you very much for talking us through that. And you can read all those viewpoints in this week's magazine. Uh, I feel like we've got a children's special this week because (laughs) you have also been looking at a story about children at Becky. It's about concussion in children. Tell us a little about the study that, that you've been looking at. Who did the study? What was their method? This was a study done in Israel led by Dr. Evrati, who specialises in traumatic brain injuries. The study was looking at children who'd been in hospital and been diagnosed with concussion. And the aim of the study was to find out how many had gone on to develop something called persistent post-concussion syndrome, which is when the concussion symptoms continue beyond the expected recovery period after an injury has occurred. Okay, and what did um, Dr. Efrati find? Well, of the 205 children that took part, 25% were found to be suffering from this syndrome, which had not previously been diagnosed. Now, these symptoms can include uh, headaches, difficulty concentrating and irritability. And what Dr. Efrati told me is that this study suggests we are not looking for this syndrome in children. He said in adults, when there's cognitive decline, we see we seek the cause of that. But in children, sometimes this is just put down to children having a behavioural or mental health issue. Oh, that's really interesting. And what sort of recommendations are being made sort of off the back of the study? 
One of the main things is that children need to get enough rest after suffering a concussion. I spoke with the major trauma consultant, Dr Diane Fisher, who is the British Equestrian Trade Association's chief medical officer, and she emphasised that rest means resting without a tablet or television in front of them. And she also touched on the language we use around concussion. And there's this tendency for people to say, oh, it's it's just a bit of concussion, which I've actually seen myself on social media when people are discussing an injury they've had. And Dr. Fisher pointed out that concussion is a traumatic brain injury. And she believes that changing the language we use around it would change how a parent might view that injury. Okay, interesting one there as well, looking at those serious consequences of of having a bang on the head in a fall. Thank you, Becky. Eleanor, we're also on the Brexit trail yet again this week. And you spoke, I think, to World Eventing Team Gold medalist Gemma Tattersall about her experiences crossing the channel just a few weeks ago. Give us the rundown on what happened to Gemma. Yeah, she had an absolute nightmare trip. Um, She had left her home in Sussex at about one o'clock in the morning, allowing plenty of time, knowing that there have been delays since Brexit. But she got to the place where you have to get your carnets checked, which are the documents you have to have all your horses and all your kit, which I hadn't realised. You have to list all your hoof picks and numbers and all that um and she she stopped to get her numbers uh, sorry she stopped to get <laughs> carnets stamped uh as you have to do before every trip and after every trip and she said she sat there with the officer and said please watch me do this so it's all okay he took them away and brought them back and then they got the ferry had to wait ages for the next ferry got to Calais and waited there for the carnets to be stamped and for the vet check. And they said, oh, sorry, one of them hasn't been stamped. One of the carnets hasn't been stamped. So it hadn't been done at the pre-departure uh, office. And they just said, you you can't carry on. So they told her she would have to get all the horses back on the ferry, go back to Dover, get the carnet step stamped and then come back. And of course she was like, well, that's not really an option because they've been on the lorry so long anyway. And eventually her mum had to come from Sussex, get a lorry, come and pick up the one horse that wasn't on the carnet and take her back. And she got home about four o'clock in the morning. Gosh, that, that mm. really is a nightmare, as you say. And I think you spoke to another rider who also experienced some delays. Tell us about, about her. Yeah, I spoke to Elizabeth Baker, who only lives about 15 miles from Dover, and it took her over 10 hours just to get clear of Calais. And and she didn't have, you know, a missing stamp or anything like that. It was just hours and hours of waiting. And she said, you know, they her opinion was they choose to do it all the checking while you're there which she said takes as long as they want it to and and one thing both riders said is that you know that they would understand if this was all about checking the horses and checking their welfare but the people who supposedly are checking them just sort of stick their head in count the legs and then go yeah that's it so you know you could have any old horse on there Mm. and what did defra say about this so defra said that they do sympathize with the owners who they say are understandably concerned for the welfare of their horses because this is a problem you know they're on the, on the lorry for so long um and they say they're continuing to meet regularly with key industry stakeholders and authorities in the eu on the issue so Hopefully, you know, it is on their radar, they are working on things and hopefully things will improve because like Gemma said, you know, this isn't, she says, this isn't just me, this happening to, it's everyone and it has to be sorted out. Mm, Definitely. Well, thank you, Eleanor, for talking us through that and thank you to Becky for joining us today too. 
Now we're going over to Trisha Nassau-Williams. Trisha is a qualified saddler, saddle fitter, bit and bridle fitter and liveryman at the Worshipful Company of Lorreners. She's lectured in Lorrenry, that is bits and bridling, to saddlery students at Capel Manor College for many years. Having previously run her own retail saddlery shop specialising in Lorrenry and saddle fitting, she now works as the field officer and Lorrenry consultant for the British Equestrian Trade Association. Over to you, Trisha. On this episode, we're going to be looking at equine mouth assessments, the different types of these and the role of the equine dental technician. Most riders would be mindful of routine care of the horse's feet, chewing and grooming and worming and so on. But there are welfare considerations also relating to bitting and bridling, as well as checking that their tack fits correctly, saddle, bridle bit. It's also really important to have a good routine care of his mouth and teeth. So... Mouth observations, routine care, for me, can be provided for with our horses in three different ways. First of all, there's the critical care and routine maintenance that we see receive via the equine dental technician or equine dentistry vet. They should be coming out to your horse, regardless, in my mind, of how old the horse is or the amount of work that the horse is doing. He's got his teeth, he's using them every day, he needs routine care. But so ideally to have them out at least every 12 months and thereafter leave them to advise you how often they should be coming. I recently had a youngster with a lot of retained caps that looked most bizarre and I was advised having had them resolved to actually have that youngster checked every six months. So yes, it's another bill for the horse, but if it's going to save any issues from a welfare perspective is critically important and also if you solve problems before they become issues it's best as an all-round equitational approach. So having a good equine dental technician uh, checking your horse's teeth and mouth every 12 months is very important. It will allow them to if appropriate to float the teeth to make sure there are no sharp edges and again if it's done routinely it's so much less of a performance for the both the equine dental technician stroke vet or the horse himself because there's much less work to be done. It's a part of routine care. We all know ourselves if we avoid the dentist for ages, it's one big journey to get it all sorted out. Whereas if it's little and often, it's much less of a bother for us. And so that would enable also the routine check to have a look at the mouth to make sure there's nothing in, in the oral cavity or in the cheeks or the tongue, etc. that's of worry or concern and to highlight it to the owner if it possibly could be. If perhaps with the youngster there were wolf teeth there that need to be removed or perhaps bit seats need to be added and so on. For those that aren't familiar with bit seats, they are just the outer edge, top outer edge of the first premolar tooth being very gently floated so it's not so sharp. So if the horse does have a situation where his tongue should come up against his first big grinding molar teeth, um, with the bit next to it that it's it much less likely to cause any adverse effect on the horse's tongue or, or mouth. So it's quite a routine thing. Then you've got the form of mouth check that a bit and bridle fitter would perform. They are not going to have the use of a gag, they're not going to be invasive in the way that an equine dental technician would be. But 
they have to have an understanding of your horse's individual mouth conformation in order to be able to appreciate the horse's requirements. So they will, with care, be parting the horse's lips, having a good look inside their mouth. But before that, they will have an overall look, just as an equine technician would, of the horse as a whole sphere. So feeling around the horse's face, looking carefully in his mouth, the size of his tongue and so on, is all critical. And then there's the role that we as horse owners can perform and do as a routine thing so that we are not only aware of our own horse's individual confirmation, but we'll be really quick to spot when something has stepped out of the norm. If we notice bruising or contusing on our horse's bars that wasn't there before, if we know that what was the norm of them and, and give acknowledge the change, then we can be very quick to react and respond to that. Why has it happened? Do I need to change my bitting? Was it my fault as a rider? How can I prevent it happening again? So I would encourage riders to, just as they would routinely pick up the horse's feet, to routinely feel, get used to checking and feeling around the horse's face and without being invasive, just to get used to checking and looking at the sides of the horse's mouth, the tongue and the bars. I know that my horses, when I go to pick up their feet, because it's a routine daily experience, they actually offer their hoof up to me. If you have a horse that is not at all used to having his mouth looked at, he will pull away and find it a strange experience. But those horses that are used to it are settled to it, it's a normal part of the routine, and therefore they'll be much more comfortable with the situation. So as a horse owner's guide to observing your horse's face and mouth without being invasive, without doing anything silly like putting your fingers in the horse's mouth, I would start at the top, be in an enclosed environment, perhaps your stable or enclosed stable yard, head collar on and just have a good look around your horse's head. Is there anything that looks rubbed or sore or diff different from the norm for him? Standing slightly to one side towards the front, gently feel all around his bridle path, his, his front of his brow and you're looking and feeling with the pads of your fingers for any soreness, tenderness, anything that would cause you to take note that is different from before. And very gently, you can place the pad of your fingers at the top of the, the, his big jaw joint, the temporomandibular joint, the TMJ, and with your head slightly away from his, because if he does lift his nose up and clonk you on the face, you won't be very happy. Just very, very gently palpate with your fingers. Does that gap feel even? Look at your horse's eyes and ears. The eyes and ears, and if you can see it, the tightness of his mouth are the great reactors to his sensation, how he's feeling. And if he's quite happy for you to do that, and if that feels even, that's all good news. But if perhaps he has changed and that doesn't feel the same and reacts to it, that is again a signal to you that you may need to get further advice and support. Then feel all around down the side of his face, placing your hands over the outer sides of his cheek, along the length of his equine dental arcade over his molars and just feel for anything that uh, he might react to or is different or sore around his muzzle and particularly if you do use uh, any strap nose bands underneath his uh, jaw through the chin groove area or use a curb chain just feel to make sure that that's not bruised, contused, soft, sore, sore or anything of that nature. Then standing at the front just have a little look and just see how even his eyelashes are 
and also take a little look at the top of his nostril. I mean, this is something you'd probably do if you're new to your horse, but not so much routinely. And if they are particularly uneven on both going down one side to the other, then again, you want to perhaps seek advice and help as to why the horse is appearing to be on an amateur level a bit lopsided. It's just a signal for you to ask for more advice and help. Looking at the side of the horse's mouth, standing to the side, you can very gently part his lips and just look inside. Look and observe how full is his mouth? How large is his tongue? Does it, is it a very full, large tongue? Does it, is it like a, a double duvet spilling over a sing, single bed? Um, or is it neat and contained, sitting comfortably within his space? Is there a generous amount of space within his oral cavity? Or is it really very minimal? What are his bars like? You can gently, with the pad of your finger, feel the toothless area between the incisor teeth and the premolar molar teeth and just observe how smooth that is, how consistent it is. Can you feel any lumps or bumps that might perhaps be on an older horse, a sign of a bar spur from injury of the past? Is it very pointed? Is it very broad and smooth? All of this is stuff for you to know and acknowledge and, of course, do it from both sides. I would not encourage the average horse owner to take the horse's tongue out of the horse's mouth because a lot of trauma and damage can be done uh, and that can be extremely serious for the horse. So leave that to your bit fitter or equine dental technician. But do go around and look from the other side and again observe the thickness of the lips, the length of the mouth, the condition of the bars and the condition of the tongue as much as you can see. And I think all of that will give you a good perspective, as I say, not only if there's been any damage, but just knowing what is normal for your horse so that if you notice a difference, you're much more able to acknowledge it. The last little test you can do as a routine thing every now and then is to do a little flex test with your horse. So stand him level and square and in just in a head collar, encourage him to bend round to his girth line on both sides freely with a loose rein and then bend down to his chest and just observe how easily and consistently he can do it because if say you've been riding and you've noticed he just doesn't feel quite it's not lame but just doesn't feel quite the same as before and if you repeat that test and that is dramatically changed that again can be an indicator to you that you need to go and get further professional advice be it from your vet or your equine physio saddle fitter and so on. So those are just some of the ways that you can really build up a routine to your horse's care. And the only other one I would add additionally to that is the care of the equipment that you're using. Make sure that your saddle, your bridle, your saddle cloths, etc. are all routinely cleaned and kept in good condition. As with anything, like picking your paddock, do it little and often. It's not a chore. It doesn't take very long. Leave it for a long period of time and it can have a lot of detrimental effects and be a much more long, tiresome job. And always wash the bit and dry it gently after every ride. You owe it to your horse. So that's all we've got time for on this episode. But to find further help and advice on saddle, bit or bridle fitting, please do go to beta-uk.org. BETA are the British Equestrian Trade Association here to serve you and your horse. Look out for the big BETA logo when you shop in store as a sign of a good approved retailer. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Tricia. Tricia will be back with us next week to talk about measuring and sizing of bits. Our interview will be with New Zealand event rider Janelle Price, talking about her 2018 badminton win 
and her rides are both Kentucky and Badminton in a few weeks' time. We'll also review the Grand National and the World Cup finals, so there's a lot to look forward to. If you're enjoying the podcast, do rate, review and share it in your podcast app to help us spread the word. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.